Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. From the Port of Los Angeles, where I moved cargo until automation took our livelihoods, I wore my boots. To the halls of the academy, where a first-generation student earned his PhD, I wore my boots. You've got to know history to change it, and I can't stand on the sidelines and watch the American dream die. Life in the Inland Empire is tougher than it needs to be, and as a working-class historian, I know how we got here and what we can do about it. Now I wear my boots on the campaign trail. Hi, I'm Liam O'Mara, and I'm running for Congress. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and this week we're speaking with congressional candidate Liam O'Mara. Welcome, Liam. Howdy. Happy to be here again. Yeah, so Liam, we had you on the show before. You are also an anteater. Go UC Irvine anteaters. Uh, PhD, I know you teach uh, history, philosophy, what have you. You had a fairly successful run the first time against Ken Calvert, who is an extreme right-wing guy down uh, in this area in Southern California. Um, so now you're running a second time. What are some of the lessons that you learned from that first run that you can now apply? And then I also am curious to know if you think that now having name recognition in the district will be helpful in uh, maybe securing the election. Oh, good gracious, yes. Um, there are... Um... Frankly, there's a lot of things that you learn the first time around. There's no, you can read as many books as, on this as you want and nothing really prepares you for the reality of campaigning. Right. And more of my, I mean, I had done a ton of research on the district and the issues and what could be done here and how you do it, but actually trying to apply that and go through each thing. And then we have the whole pandemic, which really yeah. messed up our 2020, I gotta say. Having to, to run a general election without knocking a single door, I mean, that's that's unique. Um, yeah, so no, it, it definitely is, especially if yeah. you're new to politics and folks don't knew, know who you are. You really need to right. be able to meet constituents and talk to them about your plans. So that's definitely yeah. a hindrance. Yeah, all across 2019, um, I had a great deal of success in convincing people who were self-identified conservative independents and even moderate Republic Republicans to come on board because like, I wasn't scary. I wasn't yeah. like, oh, scary <laughs> communists or something like, no, I'm just an ordinary guy. And I understood the issues uh, that, they, that they were facing. Uh, because honestly, in a conversation, you can always put things in a way that makes sense to someone and, and respects where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. You don't get that when all you are is just a generic D and someone makes the phone call. Hi, I'm calling from the Liam O'Mara campaign. Oh, he's a Democrat, right? Yeah. Uh, they don't talk to you. So no, that's, that's true. To get past this time around, being able to spend two full years engage with the community well as soon as we get out the door again. But, you know, most of two years is where we're slowly getting vaccinated and all that. But the um, the run, as you mentioned, you, you said fairly successful. Honestly, it's it was shockingly successful for this district. Right. Uh, the single best total that the incumbent had, had ever had in his previous fourteen wins. This is he's he's not going to be in there for thirty years. Right. But in pre fourteen previous wins, his best number ever was one hundred forty nine thousand in twenty sixteen when Trump was there. Trump actually did better in this area in 2020. Um, and we actually got up to an 85% turnout, which is insane. Interesting, wow. But um, his best ever was 149 before this year. We had 157,000 votes. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are enough people in Southwest Riverside County to flip this seat blue if you're running on the right issues and talk right. about them in the right way to people. Uh, we just have to to maintain that coalition, to excite and engage those same voters and get them to come back out, particularly the younger ones. Our largest voting block were 18 to 24 year olds. That doesn't surprise me at all. It, it doesn't on the issues, no. And they face a lot of the challenges that I'm pointing to all the time. They know that this economy is screwing them. And if we can keep them engaged and get them to turn in their ballots for a midterm, we win because he's not going to have Trump on the ballot to save him with a turnout. Most of the, that, those voters who came out for Ken in 22 or in 20 are not going to be there in 22. 
Indeed, and I also think there's a vacuum uh, to be filled. So Trump was a right-wing populist, and I think the reason a lot of those same voters voted for Trump is because they're hurting economically. There's massive income inequality in the country, and the neoliberals are not responding to that whatsoever. They continue to take corporate money. They continue to, uh, you know, rule in favor of the corporate oligarchy as far as when decisions, decision makings, decision making is happening. Couldn't get that out. And I think really recently the uh, fight for 15 is a prime example of that. We had a situation in which the Democrats had an opportunity to fight to have the $15, $15 minimum wage increase in the COVID bill, which would have been ideal because it's a budget rec- reconciliation bill. It's not subject to being filibustered. So they only need a simple majority. But for, you know, for a million reasons, they couldn't do that. And I believe that if Biden and Harris really wanted that as part of the COVID relief bill, they wouldn't have used the parliamentarian would, as an yeah. excuse. And right. they, and in the very least, Biden should have been able to get his two senators who are from Delaware, that's his home state, in line to, uh, to support this, which didn't happen, which leads me to believe they didn't want it. These policies remain incredibly popular with both right-wing and left-wing voters. So, yeah. you know, whoever responds to those is who's going to get elected into office, I think, on the uh, congressional district level for that reason. And Ken is on record repeatedly as opposing even the existence of a minimum wage. Right. So it's an important issue there. And it's a matter of getting people to understand that the minimum wage is, one, originally designed to be a living wage so you could actually afford your rent and your bills. And two, if that becomes the bottom wage, then everyone's paid goes up. It changes the entire scale. So it's an issue that affects all of us. And one of the things that really frustrates me, and again, I'm a historian, so I tend to take the long view of everything. Yeah. If you go back to the mid-60s, the minimum wage was 12 bucks an hour. If you adjust for inflation, it was considerably higher than the current federal minimum oh, yeah. wage. And then you wonder, like, gosh, why did so many of the boomers do better right. than, than everyone before? Because the starting entry-level job paid a living wage, and you could sock cash aside and get by. It no longer does. Right. If you no, actually continue to match productivity and inflation, the minimum wage right now would be $24 an hour. Yeah. And would be on track to, to surpassing 30. That's right. But he- it doesn't. We're fighting for 15. I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? We're fighting to get back to what we had in the 1960s? Exactly. I mean, look, and here's the, the comical part of that, too, is when guys like Joe Manchin say things like, well, we should at least index index it to inflation. My response is like, well, my dude, if it had been indexed to inflation all along, it would be, you know, $25 an hour. So this is a bad argument. And that ship yeah. has already sailed. I agree. $15 isn't, isn't even close to enough. Yet here we okay, are. I'm, I'm, like, I'm all over that. Let's index it to inflation. And it's $24 an hour right now. Done. Done. Except they don't want to do it starting with that. They want to start it at like 11 now and say, let's index it going forward. But I don't even believe right. that that's what they really want to do. I think this is just one no. more excuse. Even even there, even if they had, all it does is it, it is it locks in the poverty that we've built up. We've lost 20% of the middle class in this country. Poverty has been growing. If you go back to the 1960s and you think about those great society programs under Johnson, in a 10-year period, we dropped the national poverty rate by more than 10%. Since Reagan, it has climbed steadily. And all they do is they keep rejiggering things to pretend that it's not as bad as it is. But if you look at the massive increases in consumer debt, if you look at how much faster housing, healthcare, and education have gone up faster than inflation has, and that income has gone up slower than inflation, if you adjust for it, we're making the same wage that we were in the 1970s while costs have gone up and everyone ignores that they're like well you can have an iphone or you must be doing all right like hello you need a telephone <laughs> yeah, just exactly. to get a job in the first place it's not a luxury so uh, liam i think another really good example of what you're talking about right now is the fact that the uh, minimum poverty for family four that they use to index all of these things off of is twenty eight thousand dollars a year which is ridiculous. So when they claim that they've now halved childhood poverty, it's ludicrous. You haven't halved anything. In the city of LA, you need what? $70,000 a year for a family of four just to get by. Like how can they how can they make that claim and not really address the underlying uh, factors that they're looking at or using? Well, the how is easy. We allow the Congress to get away with it. I mean, it's, I mean to be frank, we have a lot of deeply dishonest assholes in Washington. Yeah. 
They really don't care. And they're not going to care until we force them to care. $28,000, are you kidding? When when uh, when rent in a, on, a, on a tiny little place is a grand? Yeah. So you're talking already half of your income going up to just paying the rent. And you've got utilities and all your expenses. And I don't know, how about eating at some point? You're just, it's impossible. It's impossible. That's not a, that's not a poverty, that's, that's a part, not a poverty wage, it's a starvation wage. Mm -hmm. That's how we end up with so many homeless people. That's mm -hmm. how we end up with such massive consumer debt. And that's why people can never get ahead. The whole point of these kind of programs, the whole point of things like a minimum wage is so that you don't end up breeding dependence on social welfare and pushing people right. into poverty, that you can get a leg up, that you can actually pull yourself up. But unless you make more than your current bills, you will never save a dime. You will never invest a dime. You will not be able to go to school or anything else. You're going to be stuck grinding along. And that's right. just what we should be doing in the richest country in the history of the world. Oh, it's insane. And you know, you're saying a thousand a month, which is probably the case where you are in LA for a one bedroom apartment. The average rent is like 2,200 and a one bedroom oh, no. apartment for a family of four. That's wow. Cramped. No, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm looking at the national average. Oh, the national. So it's not even, what's yeah, the average actually, rent in your area? It, it's higher in my area. Okay. I mean, it, it, even in Southwest Riverside County, you, you, you would struggle to find a place that could fit a family of four for a grant. Okay. Uh, but in like Northern New York, you could right. pull it off. Right, right. You know I mean? So it really just depends on where you are. And again, we often use really stupid statistics for that. So maybe, yeah, <laughs> you're not on the edge of starvation if you're making $28,000 a year in Northern New York, although it's still a stretch with a family of four. You'd still be poor. But oh my God, California, yes. it's impossible. Yeah. I mean, no one can make a living like that. Right, so right. really adjusting things to not only cost of living, in, in, in areas and, you know, looking at the geography as well, but also connecting things to the inflation and productivity overall. We have to index these things better. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I want to switch gears and ask you a little bit about your opponent, Ken Calvert. He's been in office, what, 30 years. So I think a lot of yep. people just automatically vote for him off of name recognition. They vote for him because he's a Republican without really listening or seeing what he's talking about. I wanted to ask you, he was one of the Republicans that uh, voted against um, certifying the election results after January 6th. Before January 6th, there were a lot of Republicans that were on board with that. But after January 6th and the insurrection, they changed their tune and wanted to back away and step away from that. But he was one of the few that didn't. Do you think that's going to help his case in your district or do you think that's going to be harmful? It really depends on who you're talking to. I have had people already reach out to me this early, um, actual Republicans, registered Republicans in the area saying, I, I can't back this guy anymore. I got to look at the alternatives and wanting to chat with me to, again, see, am I scary? Yeah. And finding, no, you're actually not. And have then started following my social media and liking my posts and whatnot. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so I'm not some scary right. going to take all your stuff. Um, but people normally don't pay attention to that. They're not willing to look outside of those safe areas and the nice tribalistic labels. Oh, who's the R, who's the D and just stick with that. Right. A lot of the people in the area who do follow him, and I mean, Republicans in the area who follow him don't like him. Um, Calvert has never been terribly popular, uh, but he's the only Republican they've got because he raises enough from defense contractors and land developers that no Republican could run against him in a primary and win. So they're stuck with him. Mm. So the only alternative is can they get on board behind the Democrat? And we found when we were doing tons of public events in 2019, yes, a lot of people can. And if we manage to have those conversations, uh, and again, it's been complicated during the pandemic, but I'm still having them and I'm still winning people over. Uh, with a lot of those moderates, yes, we that it will absolutely hurt him. Yeah. It will help him to retain the Trumpist base that helped him in 16 and 20, though, uh, because he can say, I was loyal to Trump and I supported this and that. Ken has, for his entire career, tried to walk a tightrope. On the one hand, appealing directly to reactionaries and white nationalists and kind of papering over all of that kind of stuff. But trying to play the California moderate, like yeah. the non-scary Republican that any moderate could support. And in the, along the way, he actually picked up plenty of Democratic votes in his 30 years. There are a lot of moderates that like, yeah, he's fine. He's, he's not scary. 
but they're not watching the details. They're not seeing who he's really reaching out to as well. He's tried to play this, you know, two-faced game the entire time. And what 6th January helps us do is peel away that mask. Right. That he could watch people break into the Capitol and take a dump in Nancy Pelosi's office and still vote to support their conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one way or another, you have to just realize that Trump legitimately lost this election. It's a conspiracy to say otherwise. I mean, we did paper ballot recounts. Pennsylvania, for example, had a much more solid uh, paper trail, which they didn't have before. In 2016, after 2016, they updated the machines in 2018, so there's a paper trail. So it really is conspiracy theory to be saying that uh, Trump won this election. Um, He also has- the election we've had yet. I mean, there's more data on this. I mean, it's better than previous elections. They could not have possibly stolen this, but it doesn't stop them. That's the beauty of conspiracy theories anyway. It's more like it uses the same kind of psychology as, um, uh, well, in some ways as religions, but but as any kind of anything else that kind of like sucks you in that doesn't really involve actual evidence. Right. People are still circulating articles saying that they have proven that in Pennsylvania yeah. there was an extra hundred thousand votes that should have gone to Trump. Like, no, they—that's literally the opposite of what yeah, the state is. It's literally the opposite of what happened. Um, and whether or not, like, we could have a conversation about whether or not a private corporation should be uh, having allowed to have proprietary software when it comes to our voting systems. I'm saying no, that's not the case. At bare minimum, minimum is because the optics are bad, but also because this is a public uh, a good, in my opinion. But, but yeah, we've established now with the paper ballots that this is absolutely the case that, that Biden won. Like, this isn't up for debate, but you're right. Yeah, there's still... Evidence-wise, it's incontrovertible, but that that's the... For the people who are willing to peddle them, like Ken Calvert, the beauty of a conspiracy is that it doesn't have to be proven. It's <laughs> already proven in the minds of the people who like it. Right, and, and believe it. It doesn't matter what the evidence really sa- says. You're right. It's you're right. never going to matter. But yes, um, we should pay attention to things like these kind of complaints and say, yes, we should get rid of all these, you know, proprietary voting machines. They were never a great idea. I've loved paper ballots my whole life because it's always physically there. They save them. You can see that stuff. Um, But yeah, you you don't get the same uh, security in that sense. And maybe again, that's me as, as a historian wanting to preserve the records, but you don't get the same thing with the, the electronics, but that doesn't let them steal elections. It doesn't work that way in the U.S. We're not Russia. You you can't stuff an extra 20% of votes in and get away with it in the U.S. Right. We're, we're, the Republicans are trying to turn us into you know, that kind of managed democracy, but they're not there yet. <clears throat> also, so Calvert has a reputation for kind of promoting other QAnon conspiracies. I have seen lots of people call him QAnon Calvert, like that's his nickname. What are some of the most outrageous things that he's said and done in this area? Well, he's run heavily on a lot of weird immigrant conspiracies. Hmm. So when Trump started saying, yeah, like Mexicans are bringing in rapists or something, you're like, Ken loved that because he's been saying exactly the same thing for decades, you know, trying to spin immigration as somehow a threat to Americans when literally immigrants and even the undocumented have lower rates of crime and higher rates of entrepreneurship and economic output. So, you know, it's completely the opposite, but he's loved that and has always gone for those nativist votes and those white supremacist votes. So it, that fits into there, but there's also the, um, the, the social conservatism aspect of it, the kind of like this, the sexual reactionary stuff. Um, you know, notably back in, um, in the 1990s when he was running against Mark Takano, who at the time was not publicly, you know, was not publicly out as a gay man. Um, Ken was perfectly happy to run on that and like slamming him on it. Like, is should Riverside be like San Francisco? Ooh, scary stuff. Like, are you kidding me? Like, who cares? But he ran hard on that, which was so horrifying. But that kind of sexual reactionary stuff shows up a lot in the QAnon literature as well, like the fear-mongering around sexualities. And another way that comes in there too is um, the uh, the fear-mongering around, oh, the big S word, socialism. 
Yeah. So it's been hammering all across the last election and so far already in this one. He's been, he posted with social media that the Democrats radical socialist agenda. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like there's literally nothing in my platform that wouldn't have passed under Eisenhower or Nixon. There's nothing radically socialist about centrist social democratic policies. But right. they, they run on this because, again, it doesn't have to have any facts behind it. And, again, that's the beauty of things like QAnon. It can be a complete web of nonsense held together by, like, you know, tape and peanut butter or whatever. But it works for them. You know, and, yeah, socialism plays a good part in that, too. Like, weird government conspiracies about a, a secret cobble of people trying to, like, take over and impose a Stalinist dictatorship. I don't know. I, I just I don't see I don't see Bernie as Stalin. Do you? I mean, I, no, I don't, I just, you know, like, but what? What? <laughs> that's just it, Liam. They have weaponized the word socialism. It doesn't even mean anything to them that that's accurate at this point. So, I mean, socialist policy is FDR policy. You're right. And Eisenhower and Nixon embrace some socialist policy. Absolutely, too. But they have it in their mind that's it's an authoritarian dictatorship as opposed to the democracy owning the means of production. Etc. So they have very um, contrived and weaponized versions of what this word means. And it's unfortunate because all of these things basically fly in the fa face of working class rights. This is about workers getting more rights and about the platonomy not being able to extract more wealth at the end of the day, which is why it's been weaponized by the platonomy. But I wish I wish that more folks in the United States of America would stop buying into the, the claptrap because that's what it is. It really kind of confuses things because it allows people it to yeah. say Bernie Sanders is uh, running as a socialist. Like he probably is a socialist in his aesthetic, yeah. you know, like <laughs> I, I mean, his views, sure. But his platform has never been. His platform is straight up social democracy. It's literally centrist. But see, I would say so. Right. And I would say social democracies are a form of socialism. I think there's many different forms. I think it's a bigger tent. I would say it's a bigger tent than than what well, you're sure, discussing. Yeah. Again, it's a it's a giant spectrum. Yeah, I mean, but, but people do weaponize it to this one authoritarian thing, and that's right. the problem. All they want is that one thing. So mm -hmm. where you could have the, the center-left social democrats, or you could have, like, the literal anarchists, you know, like the libertarian right. left. I mean, yeah, anarchism is not Stalinism. You can't... No. Push <laughs> yeah, those together. things are like... But, <laughs> yeah, but anything with the S word works for them. And honestly, no, it's... Yeah, um, exactly. It's, it, it plays into literally an entire century of propaganda. Yeah, I mean, we we intervened in the Russian Civil War. We put troops on the ground in Russia trying to you know, support the monarchy. I mean, we have been demonizing socialist ideals actually going back into the 19th century in the mm -hmm. U.S. So well more than a century of propaganda saying socialism means dictatorships. So our use of it on the left in the U.S. accepts that baggage. And we know the right is never going to make fine distinctions. They're not going to because they want to be able to make a propagandistic argument that says anybody is going to be, I don't know, Stalin. Hell, they even make Hitler a socialist, which is which is no, nah, yeah, that's nationalism. That always kind of gets yeah. my chaps my hide. Right, it's right wing populism. Yeah, I mean, it's right wing populism, and that's not the same redefine thing. the word to mean what they wanted, and that's what Ken does. That's what Republicans do in general. They redefine it to mean whatever scary thing they want. In the same way that, like, you know, Hitler flipped it around and made it something something positive. He basically inverted the meaning of it to try and steal votes from the actual left-wing parties for his right populist movement. Yeah, the right is Leo, never going to be honest about this. Let me ask you a question um, about this from a historical point of view. I know that FDR, when he was looking to pass the New Deal, there were some <clears throat> historical documents that I learned about when I was in college at UC Irvine, but I was fascinated by this. They had a discussion about whether or not they would refer to these policies as socialism or liberalism simply because of the way the word had been weaponized in the United States. They all agreed that it was uh, socialism, but they were afraid of using that term because it had been weaponized. So they went with liberalism. And oddly for me, when I was, um, in this class, I kept thinking to myself, well, liberalism means laissez faire. And this really isn't laissez faire. But because of this, we've been sort of stuck with this idea that liberalism is something other than what it is in the United States. Um, what is your opinion on that? Well, again, all of this is screwed up. And we use all of these terms <laughs> wrong in the U.S. We totally it's do. It's honestly <laughs> sad that we never really adopted SOCDEM in the U.S. We don't use social democracy. Um, 
So it's like kind of it leaves you with this weird kind of I mean that 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 should have been their choice. Social democratic parties existed in Europe since the nineteenth late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. They could have called it that and chose not to. Right. Um, by calling it liberalism, which is actually a um, a, a right wing uh, argument, it's it's literally like libertarian <laughs> right? right. Exactly. You know, it that's inaccurate. Liberal liberalism is a right wing philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a right liberal. It's it's a liberal. You know, right libertarian you know, liberalism, basically like you know John Stuart Mill is all for like right. um, not only free trade, but also for banning child labor and for rights to women and minorities and everything else. I mean, it it it, it kind of it fits a lot of the social priorities that liberals in the U.S. have, but not their economic views, because it's about like shrinking and strangling government, you know, making it just a bare minimum regulatory framework. Right. So FDR is clearly not doing that. No, but no, I just think it's interesting. It wasn't really that- accurate either. They and they just instead of coming up with a new term, they picked one that at least people already knew, and they they gave it their own meaning. Right, which right. is it's just problematic in the long run. All of these things get get to be problematic. You're sort of stuck with them at some point. The words are sort of forced on you, mm-hmm. but they don't really mean what people tend to think they mean. I, I love like um, trying to blow minds in classrooms and tell them like, okay, so you think you know what conservative means, right? Liberal, progressive, socialist, capitalist. You think you know what these words mean, right? You're wrong about every single yeah. one of them. <laughs> and then we take them all apart and show what they actually mean. Like, Oh, oh, that's not, I didn't think conservatism meant that. Like, yeah, it does. No, right. It's kind of wild though. We're kind of stuck with it because, and I always love when I tell like a conservative that I'm not a liberal and they're, they're just, they like, yes, you are. And I'm like, no, I'm really, I'm really not. I don't believe in laissez-faire economics. I'm not a liberal, but here we are. Um, anyway, it was an interesting. I, yeah, it is. It, it, it's, it's weird. It's it kind of, we're stuck with it. We're stuck with but There it. is a way, in, in the same way that you were saying, like, you know, socialism kind of works because at least there's that prioritizing the workers and worker rights yeah. that it has in common with, with uh, social democracy. There's ways in which you could argue that you and I are both liberals if you think about it in, in terms of, like, basic neurology. Because if there's a, a basic split that develops as, you know, our, you know, as our species comes into existence, there's a more conservative way of thinking that values tradition and the way things were done and helps to hold the tribe together and pass on values. Right. And a more liberal mentality that says, I'm going to experiment and bang these two rocks together and see what happens and comes up with new ideas all the time. Okay. Um, that that um, innovative spirit is a kind of liberal thinking, but it's not political liberalism. So uh, I'm like, by personality and character, I'm a liberal in my political ideology. No, I'm not. So it's, um, again, it adds another layer of complication to it too. You know, it adds something else. It just total nonsense. I mean, so yeah, these terms get really, really messed up in our use in the US. And it really adds a lot of, it helps the right more than it helps us. Oh, 100%. Because they are able to fear monger around certain labels. And whenever you exceed to them, you're often walking into a trap. There's And there's just tons of these that frustrate me no end. Like the whole um, uh, pro-life, pro-choice debate, and then the um, forcing people to defend Roe v. Wade, both of those things are literally traps from the right. Because any other advanced democracy that has legalized you know, ab- abortion rights has done it through a, you know the, the parliament through their Congresses. We did it through a, um, a court case with a, um, a thin pretext that there's an implied right to privacy in the, in the Constitution. Since it's not spelt out there, it can be overturned. Mm-hmm. We should have been pushing, instead of defending Roe v. Wade, we should have been pushing the Congress to pass a law all this yeah. time, instead of wasting decades trying to build up that support. We gave that to the right. And by allowing them to force us into this pro-life, pro-choice, if they say I'm pro-life, oh really? You're anti-war? I didn't know that. But you're 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 pro-birth, but you're pro-life. And then if you're pro-life and I'm pro-choice, if you contrast that as a binary, that means my I have I'm choosing the opposite of life, which is yeah. to kill babies. And that's right. their argument. They want to call all of us baby killers, which is patently ridiculous. Yeah. But it works because we accepted 
the rhetorical framing. We accepted the way the right framed the argument. Mm. We do that over and over and over again and allow them to frame an issue in a way that gives them a transparent advantage. And socialism is one of those. If you accept that label, you're allowing them to paint you as a Stalinist. Yeah. And that works because fear is a powerful motivator in politics. It's sad that it works, but it does. Liam, that is that is a really salient point you're making about the way we've let the right frame conversations and discussions and ideas. And that is bad. You're right. They We let the right do it. And then we're playing defense when we have no reason to be. We shouldn't be playing defense to begin with. So it's a problem. No, I don't really, disagree with exactly. anything you just it, said. It, if you take yourselves back to the, you know, to the, um, to the physical meaning of liberal or to like progressive kind of thinking, if you want, we want to push forward, we want to like get something across. What you need to do is spend time articulating your own arguments. You want to make your case. You want to push things forward. Instead, we're constantly playing defense, mm -hmm. which is why we are slipping farther and farther behind. We're 27th in social mobility. We're 52nd in individual liberty. We're 36th in you know preventing you know, infant mortality. We are slipping way, way, way out of the rich world. And people are still able to say, land of the free, home of the brave, America's the, the greatest country on earth. And we completely ignore all of these things that are happening because we're trying to defend every last little piece of ground instead of pushing our own ideas forward. The way we got to the top in the first place was by shutting all that stuff out and doing what FDR did, just charged forward. Mm -hmm. And I try to make the point to people that the New Deal coalition won nine presidencies in a row, four for FDR, one for Truman, two for Eisenhower, You know, and, and, and then going into Kennedy and Johnson. Every one of them ran on preserving and expanding the welfare state and uh, you know social security, Medicare, everything else, like pushing forward on this. And it won consistently. As soon as we abandoned that and sort of stopped pushing forward and started playing defense, we gave the right all the all the chips. Well, but I, okay, so let's talk about Eisenhower for a second because Eisenhower is an interesting, uh, someone to study in my opinion. He's a Republican, he's not, he wouldn't be considered that by today's standards, of course. But his highest marginal tax rate was 92%, 92%. I don't think the folks realize that. And he also made a very strong case when he left office for the military industrial complex being very bad for our future. So I think almost what happened from like uh, 1972, maybe Powell memo period forward was that both parties embraced the 1%, the platonomy and started working on their behalf. And that's when the wealth extraction kicked in and when corporate ol oligarchy kicked in, the uh, US Chamber of Commerce, you know, all of these things. And we've just been marching lockstep with both parties to this place, you know, since then. Yeah, we, we have not had a major party that's a party of the working class since the Johnson era. Mm -hmm. we've, we've given it up. Since the beginning of the 1970s, the Democratic Party embraced um, the professional classes. They embraced the college educated and started focusing on urban voters. Um, we went from dominating a lot of the rural hinterland of this country to surrendering all of it to the Republicans. Both parties love to pander to working class voters and say we care about them and then advance issues that only privilege the top 10% of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a significant problem and, and a big part of our decline. When you have at least the two poles, the left and right, and they're both pushing, you end up at at least a reasonable middle. When they're both on the right, the working people and the middle class, they're the ones who get screwed. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, there's no yeah. way, I mean, Gosh, uh, people like Eisenhower and in many ways Nixon would be considered more liberal in yeah. our modern sense in America than like Clinton yeah. or Obama. Oh, I agree. And that's honestly sad. Both of them are far more authoritarian presidents and both of them are farther to the right. You know, because Nixon, at least if you're thinking about the 68 election, you know, when, when he, got, he got started and then certainly under Eisenhower, they're basically center right. You know, where, you know, people like FDR were center left. Yeah. We've completely abandoned the real middle and both parties are actively in the authoritarian right. Uh, Eisenhower not only had that 91% that top marginal rate, but had a lot of policies that encouraged investment. The way you got your exemptions, the way you got out of the higher tax rate was by investing in Americans, by giving yeah. us higher pay. So productivity and pay went up together. 
And companies wouldn't waste the time giving somebody a $30 million salary that the government's just going to tax away. They would give you, here's your million dollar salary, which is a lot of money. And I have more money to invest now in my business and growing my business and paying my workers more. We took away all of those kind of incentives. Yeah. And really, yeah. if you think about it, the point of state policies, the reason we put up with having a government in the first place is to oversee the whole is to, to basically steer the economy in a way that helps ordinary people. You know, if it's not going to do anything for us, what is the point of having one at all? It's not doing anything for people. We've right. given up that purpose entirely. And that is a legacy of aiming entirely for the right in both major parties. Indeed, true. Um, I wanted to ask you, switch gears for a second and ask you about Medicare for All. I know this is something that your campaign supports. Uh, but now there's this new uh, parlance that I'm seeing on Twitter, uh, National Improved Medicare for All. Is there a difference between that policy versus Medicare for All? And if so, can you explain it to the audience? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll confess, I'm, um, I've am i embraced that as well. And I, I keep trying to tag NEMA as well as M4A. Um, I disliked the framing of Medicare for All in the same way that I dislike um, you know, framing things as like democratic socialism. Because to me, okay. I think of when I think of democratic socialism, I think of Eugene Debs and Rosa Luxemburg. Yeah. I don't think of FDR. You know, the, the politics are quite different. Um, I don't like the framing of Medicare for all, um, but I've just sort of I've been it's been forced on me. So when um, national nurses started pushing an alternative, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll help push that along. The problem with it is, when we rolled out Medicare in the first place, it was not only limited mm -hmm. to uh, to older Americans. But it had a lot of other limitations that have gotten worse, especially yeah. as Republicans have watered things down. You pay uh, for a lot of things in Medicare. You still have a, a ton of co-pays. You still pay for prescriptions. There's still a lot of places where they can deny you. And it doesn't cover things to the same range as the M4A bills do. Mm -hmm. The Medicare for All bill gives you better health care than any other rich country. We would go from the bottom to the top where we should have been at the whole time. And we'd cover things like dental and vision, and they wouldn't be able to turn you down for something. And you'd still have the freedom of going to any provider you want. It's not like some weird socialist takeover of medicine where we're going to run all the hospitals. The doctors are now free to see everyone. Yeah, I love trying to, to frame arguments well. So think of it this way. Republicans love freedom, or at least say they do. That's the, the rhetoric of freedom, freedom, you know, they, they, you know they, they'll think about like you know, the land of the free, you know, like, okay, cool. You, you like choice, you like freedom, you, you like free markets, great. You love Medicare for all, right? No, no, that's, a, that's socialist. No, 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 it's literally freedom because here's the thing. If there's a single insurer, you can go to any doctor you want. Yeah. So, so if, 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 if Tina's like, hey, Liam, you should check out my, my provider. This, this doctor's great, you, you, you'd love him. Like, cool. Oh, not in network. Sorry, I can't do it. Uh, and I, and I've, I've lost out. If you have a single insurer, it cuts the costs for the providers. It makes all the care cheaper. So it saves you a ton of cash. So I can tell the voter also, hey, this is going to put 10 grand of your own money back in your wallet. We should have been framing Medicare for all from the beginning as a tax cut. Mm -hmm. Because if my taxes yeah. go up by $1,200, but I save 15 grand in medical costs, I just got a massive raise. And it's money that I earned. If people are getting insurance from their from their employer, that's their compensation package. It's literally money that they owe are owed. And if the employer is spending 15, 17 grand on insurance, they can be giving that to you. It's a raise to everybody. So think of it in terms of like a tax cut and uh, more freedom would help. The problem with Medicare for all as a name is they think of what they have already heard of. And Medicare for all, Medicare, the, the currently existing Medicare is nothing like the Medicare for all bill. Right. Well, so you know, that's, that's a, a good point. Break away from it. It gives us a chance to say like, look, this is not the same thing. This is not the beast you've already heard of. This is literally yeah. a better program. And then with that, use the framing that increases the freedom. It's a tax cut. It's, it's better for you, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't have the mental association. The Medicare right. Has for a lot so, of so for people that don't know, Medicare is 80-20, right? So you're still responsible for 20% unless you're impoverished and then you get Medicaid added right. to it, et cetera. So, so Medicare for all would be 100%. It's, it's entirely universal. So you would get rid of that 80-20. So it is a, a major improvement just on that alone. And I think it makes sense to expand the framing on that. 
um, so exactly. that people understand because, that better. And, and it, it, you can see that just in the breakdowns um, among support. If you look at national support for these ideas, M4A, massively popular among younger voters because they don't know what Medicare is already because they're not on it and they just look up and see what it covers. Oh, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. But if you tell somebody that either is already on Medicare or is close to it and they've looked up what it currently is, and then you say, I want to give this to everyone and I want to take away, or, or you look at somebody who's working in their, they're like in their fifties and they've got employer provided insurance, but their mother is on Medicare and they know that their mother's Medicare isn't great compared to their insurance plan. Wait, hang on, let me stop you there, Liam. What private insurance is better than Medicare? I don't know any policy. I mean, I'm that person, I'm 50 and I, my parents are on Medicare. They have way better coverage than what I do. And I pay out the nose for mine. There, there are some that are. There are, really? a, lot of, um, there are a lot of employers that still I feel like that's a unicorn now. Sense. Most people don't get great insurance. Um, a lot of employers have found ways to constantly shrink the benefits they're giving people. But that's the whole neoliberalism, flexible workforce, cut bench, pensions, yeah. cut benefits. Um, mm. But there are still, especially with um, industries that used to have very strong labor movements. Okay. So like um, in automotive or in, or in airlines, you know, there are some areas where the unions had fought for really, really good benefits. I mean, the, yeah, the benefits- But those are disappearing now too. Working. I mean, the old, um, the, the old benefit packages that they used to offer to um, marine clerks and longshoremen, my father just retired after 50 yeah. years in the waterfront, his benefits th through that were better than Medicare. But that was from, you know, a century of labor agitation and a what used to be a very strong union. The benefits are getting worse for they the are. people who are coming in now and shrinking, but that retiring generation still had good benefits. So it's for the people who are, you know, thinking of themselves as like comfortably middle class and they think they've got a good plan, but here's the whole like 80, 20 and then the right. prescription costs and everything else. And like, oh, to them, it doesn't seem like a real improvement, but it's an improvement for everybody. And it's, it, well, it's cheaper, cheaper too. even if the benefits aren't better, it's at least cheaper. It's cheaper. Exactly. Even if it's exactly the same as your Cadillac plan that a mm -hmm. few people are still getting, even if it was exactly the same, it's still going to cost half as much. So you're getting a raise. Um, so I guess getting away from the, the terminology, you know, keeps us from falling into any of those, these traps that Republicans can set for us. They have deliberately weakened Medicare over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and use, they can use that now as a weapon against Medicare for all. Which is a shame because again, shame. as soon as you explain what it really is, it's sort of like um, it's the same thing people run into with um, the ACA, right? You remember all those those polls that show like everyone hates Obamacare, but yeah. I love the ACA. <laughs> like, are, are you kidding me? Right. Like that's I, that's, that's, that's like thing. you know, I love oranges, but I hate oranges. Like yeah. really, it just it doesn't make any sense. But the framing matters. Yeah, and Obamacare had a certain um, resonance on the right, you know, a really negative association. But as soon as someone explains the ACA, they're like, yeah, this is this is an improvement. This isn't bad. Yeah, it's, it's so it's bizarre, kind of but thing. it's true. You, you have to avoid those traps. Yeah. Well, that's what we're working with because the, the propaganda flies out at people all day long, whether it's from corporate media, whether it's from Democratic Party, Republican Party, whether it's PR consultants, everybody's trying to frame an argument, right? The spin, as, as they call it. So it's really important that um, that people cut through that and get to the facts, which is tough to do. Um, a recent report from Public, Public Citizen argued that a third of all COVID-19 deaths happened because they people these were people that didn't have med, uh, medical insurance and ergo didn't have access to care. And that a lot of those deaths probably would have happened if these folks had been covered by something like Medicare for All. That's a pretty stark thing. Um, and now we have Pramila Jayapal is coming out and reintroducing med her Medicare for All bill uh, this week, maybe today, tomorrow. So where do you stand on force the vote? Force the vote was when activists were basically saying we need to force a vote on the congressional floor, even if we don't uh, have it passed right now. We have to start this conversation. We have to do something to get to push forward, to get forward. Where do you stand on that? I mean, you're exactly right. And, and Public Citizen is, is running the money with that. In fact, the numbers might even be better than that. Um, the, um, the real problem we run into, and you can see this just in um, the stark difference in death rates in the US versus all the other industrialized countries. 
It's just like we have a higher death rate from literally everything else. There's a reason we're 36th in preventing infant mortality. We just do not provide good care. And our lifespans are literally falling in the U.S. and have been for, you know, uh, for like six years in a row, I think now. It's, it's getting ridiculous. Yeah. Um, if we had universal health care, yes, a lot of that mortality would have been avoided. And we should have forced it. We should have forced it from the very beginning here. We should have used this as, as, as leverage in order to get anything else done. Um, we would still lose the vote because there are still too many you know, people in there on the corporate teat that don't really care about the voters and are willing to take the money from big pharma and the healthcare industry. We would still lose the vote, but it starts pushing us along. We yeah. need to get bolder. We need to force the conversations and the more, and then things like that. One of the main reasons forcing the vote is good, even though yes, we would lose and they could try to spin that. See, look, there isn't support for it. No, that's just not support among you people in Congress. Yeah, there's definitely but, support among the voters. Exactly. But what it does is that forces the media to run more articles on it. It forces the media to discuss it. And in the process of that, you'll start seeing some of the poll numbers that show 70% of Americans are already on board with this. And that's what that, that's when we can really put enough pressure on the people in Congress is to get them to truly understand it. And if voters start taking that into account and saying, you know what, my representative might be good on this issue or that, but they're terrible on this one. And maybe I should look at a different candidate. Yeah, I think that's true. And which brings me to my next question. I think this is the question on every progressive voters minds is how tough are you willing to be if you get elected? Um, in Congress, like, are you willing to say, no, you don't have my uh, support of this bill unless you include A, B, C, and D? Because I think people wanted to see that with the minimum wage bill. They were disappointed that their elected officials weren't willing to play the same sort of hardball that guys like Joe Manchin play. The reason Joe, the reason Joe Manchin has power is because he's taken that power by playing hardball, right? But if somebody stood up to him and said, no, I'm going to withhold my vote unless the $15 minimum wage stays in the bill, that would force him back to the negotiation table. Maybe, yes, it would take, you know, add a week or two to getting the bill passed. But, but I think people are saying, I'd rather wait two weeks and have structural change come. We need structural change. We don't need any more Band-Aids. So how, how far are you willing to take that if you were elected? Yeah, um, this is, I guess, I I'm always going to be in an interesting sort of position there vis-a-vis um, -vis the, the overall party elite. I would be forcing myself on them. You know, they, they're, they're never going to be like super enthusiastic to get someone like me. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy to being a gadfly. <laughs> I mean, I'm an academic. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in following the data. And if the numbers aren't there, if this is not actually going to help people or if this is going to hurt somebody, then I'm going to vote no. And I don't care about the tribalistic party. But well, all of the Democrats have to vote. And the whip is like, you have to vote for this. There are plenty of times I'm going to say no. But you have to be um, uh, you have to be diplomatic about that sort of thing, because if you walk in intending to burn every bridge and and push back on literally everything, then you will not get seated on committees. You will have no voice. You will have no influence. They will manage to completely sideline you and they're going to dump millions into the next race and primary you. So as long as you're willing to play ball in places where it doesn't matter and then push to make things where it does matter, where you really can make a difference. And I think one of the things that helps in a district like this is they would never have had Ken Calvert's vote. He's a Republican. I'm not trying to primary a Democrat. I'm running against a Republican. So they're gaining votes in the places where they can, where I agree with them. And they lose nothing if I oppose them on some issues like this and play hardball. And on things like the military industrial complex, healthcare, you know, a basic living wage. Yeah, no, if it's if it's not in there, I'm not supporting it. Um, I will absolutely vote down something that refuses to address the real issues. Okay, so I think that's a fair answer. Um, do you think that in this particular interest in uh, in this particular instance with the $15 minimum wage, do you think it was a mistake that six members of the House didn't put their foot down when the bill came back from the Senate. That one's, it's, um, yes, I would. Um, it is a little tougher um, because the Senate is not going, was not going to have the votes regardless and it could have then crushed the entire thing. And there are actually a lot of good things in this bill. They're gonna help people in my district and help people all across the country. 
I mean, nothing else. I mean, all the, the money that was going into like vaccine distribution and things like that. There's a lot of really good things in that uh, recovery act. Um, and if you were, if you were not going to be able to get them, if it was, if, if it was evenly divided and it was just a matter of putting pressure on the administration, does Kamala Harris override the parliamentarian? I mean, people. Well, but that's forget. just it. She chose not to, Liam. Which, right, right. Parliamentarian you know. is not like some kind of constitutional job exactly. that, like, is you know <laughs> exactly. has real power. We chose to put it there. It's a it's ridiculous. Like the, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. like the filibuster. The filibuster is bullshit too. It's not yeah, in the constitution. It, it's not a real thing. It's just a rule they made up to hobble themselves, and it's deeply undemocratic. Um, so I would have been fine with overruling the parliamentarian, just like I want to abolish the filibuster. Um, but if you can't get the votes, then you're playing hardball and not gaining anything if the Senate w wouldn't be able to get it across. So it, uh, you would have to convince those Democratic senators to come on board first. All right. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. I hear what you're saying. So let me ask you this. So I, I agree with you that somebody needed to whip the votes and clearly Biden did not whip the votes and he didn't overrule the parliamentarian, which tells me in, in a way that he didn't support having this as part of the COVID relief bill. True. But what if somebody like a Bernie Sanders had said to Joe Manchin, you're wrong. I'm not going to I'm going to withhold my vote until we get back to the table and discuss this $15 minimum wage because it needs to happen. It's structural change. And the only reason I'm pushing on this particular bill is because it's budget reconciliation. If they try to do this standalone, it's going to be filibustered and they are never going to get it passed. So I feel like this was their opportunity in a way to do something, uh, this like, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, you don't want to do this with every bill, but every now and then putting up the fight makes sense. Yeah, I don't no, know. I, I mean, I, I'm not I, sure what the answer is here, but I think it's worth discussing. No, no, I, I, I agree. Again, it's, it's that you couldn't even get all the Democratic senators on board, much less the administration. And if you don't have them to do it, you know, it's, but hang it's on, what true. I'm saying is, is we don't know that that's true. Nobody played hardball. They just accepted what Joe Manchin wanted. Like, what if somebody uh, had said, no, we're coming back to the table. You don't have my support, Biden. If two or three of these progressive senators had done that, Ed Markey, B Bernie Sanders, Merkley, I'm just saying, could they have forced him back to the table? Ah, uh, you know, you know, that's an interesting one. See, what we're doing is we're, we're sort of assuming that those conversations don't happen behind closed I, doors. Because I'm, I'm going to definitely assume that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, because people were trying to talk about things like that. The problem is, if you're not going to be able to get someone like the Joe Manchin on there, and you can't get the administration to fight the parliamentarian, if you're never going to get over that hurdle, then what you're doing is holding up something that actually helps ordinary people. And oh, uh, but that's granted, what they always yeah. say, Liam. They always I'm, use yeah, that as I'm, their excuse. No, I again, I I agree. It's it, you're you're really kind of stuck there. You're um, stuck. If this were if this was actually a um if this was more like the the relief bills they passed under Trump, then I'd have been much more in favor of of pushing hard on it because those were packed full of corporate welfare and had far less that helped ordinary people. There's a lot more good stuff in this bill that gets out the door right away and helps us through a, a tricky time. And if it was going to drag out for months more, think about, oh, gosh, how long has this been now? A year since? The I don't think it would drag out that long. But And, and we've gotten what? How, how much support has people gotten? I mean, hell, if you if you factor in how many all the exemptions that Biden was fine putting in this one, I don't I don't get the most recent stimulus. You know, no, that, that's exactly right. Up. I don't think this bill, look, there's some good stuff in there, but it's a Band-Aid over a festing, festering bullet wound. I mean, and a lot well, of these things are only pretty temporary. Pretty much our politics in general is like, I mean, there's there's nothing that great, great that gets out there. But this is at least a lot better of a bill than we had with the previous stimulus bills. And it does get some things out that help a lot of people that were really hurting. So uh, I would have to have at least some sense that it was, um, there was a realistic chance of doing that. If people like Sanders and Merkley and, and um, could have put enough pressure on Manchin to change those votes, if you could have gotten the Senate votes, I'd have been all for that. Because at that point, you're able to put pressure on the administration. And this is where- Well, that's Congress exactly it, exactly. It's job. Congress needs, to, I mean, Congress has forgotten that it is a co-equal branch of this government. And they tend to just follow whatever they're gonna get, whatever lead they're gonna get from the administration. Biden is not going to, you know, Biden is not really going to be pushing for systemic change. 
That's the pro- that's what I'm getting at, look. Liam. It's it tells me that Biden's not going to do it. Do it. Oh, that's, yeah, no. yeah. His his instincts are solidly conservative. I mean, yeah. in, in that way, in that way, his natural instincts are are further to the right even than Obama's. And Obama was already pretty far to the right, just running with more populist language. Biden is going to do the same thing. He's going to be willing to say some of the right things to get some support, mm-hmm. but his gov- his instincts are quite conservative and solidly neoliberal in his economics. He's not going to fix the real problems. We had a real opportunity with the 0708 crisis and we put all the same people back in charge that broke the financial system in the first place. We changed nothing exactly. afterwards. And we're gonna keep doing that. So what you need to do is be able to put real pressure on an administration like this. And in the long run, that can help us to elect a genuinely good president. But you have to have a Congress that's willing to step up. And that does take playing hardball. I completely agree with you. It does take pushing it. Um, there were, sadly, too many senators in the Democratic Party that had issues with this bill, with, with, that, <laughs> with, with that aspect of this bill, which is sad. Again, it infuriates me. But you do need to play harder ball on things like this. And a living wage is a really good place to do that, same as, same as health care, because we have to push the national conversation and we have to get people to really care about it. The fact that Republicans are trying to counter and say, well, what if we raise the minimum wage to $10 an hour? I'm like, uh, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, excuse my French. I'm like, bitch, please. Seriously, like we had a $20 minimum wage in 1965. Yeah, exactly. In 1965, it was better than you're offering today to your voters. And that's good enough. No, it's not good enough. And we need people to stand up and say, this is not good enough. You know, it's there- interesting to me, though, Liam, is that didn't even happen. Like, Biden could have come back and said to Joe Manchin, okay, you won't take the 15. You said you'd take 11. Let's do the 11. I mean, but they didn't even do that. Because, again, he is not that interested in doing it. That's, really yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. the only conclusion that you can come to, right? That is the obvious conclusion, right. is that it's all and bullshit. that's why Democrats lose elections. <laughs> yeah, that is why exactly. we, we went from controlling three quarters of state houses to holding one third of them. Right, right. You know, we keep losing elections over and over again that are winnable if we stick to our guns and actually run the issues. Mm-hmm. A living wage, health care, these are winning issues. A majority of Americans support them but we don't have politicians with the balls to stand up and do it. Yeah. And you have to push back harder on this. I love it when, uh, you know, big chunks of like the, at least the progressive wing do refuse things. And mm-hmm. and often like things that were broadly popular, like, I don't know, um, how many times has Bernie voted against uh, our, our military spending bills, our basic defense appropriations bills, right. just because, hey, it should not be this high. We should regularly be clocking in those votes and and protesting that and then using that to push the conversation nationally that we shouldn't be spending a trillion dollars a year on wars. It just doesn't make sense. But we don't have enough people willing to buck that stuff. It's it's, it's tough. And a lot of it really comes from, I mean, I, I hate... Oh, gosh, there are so many weird conspiracies about the Democratic <laughs> Party and the DNC and all that kind of stuff. And it's just it's um, it's so hard to deal with because elements of it really are true. I mean, the DLC really steered the party in a right. solidly yeah. right wing direction. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean it's consciously throwing elections and, you know, it doesn't want to win. It's just that it believes its own Kool-Aid. It, it, it thinks that it's doing the right thing and it honestly doesn't care about the progressive wing and getting those votes. If we don't vote, they're just gonna talk to a smaller and smaller crowd and abandon more and more districts like mine. My district is absolutely winnable. If they had put the money into the 42nd that they yeah. put into the 50th, we would have won. You know, there's 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 no way around it. If we had had the resources to run the kind of ads, we could have flipped this district. We have the voters to do it, but they don't want to. They're not willing to, to really fight for right. that kind of change. They're not. That's the unfortunate reality. Especially if it's going to get you somebody who is going to fight for the working class, no matter what. You know, if they they want somebody who's going to play ball, so to speak. Um, And that is an unfortunate reality. Um, Some of it just comes back to our constitutional structure. Political parties in the U.S. are kind of a joke. We don't have real political parties. In most countries, they're membership organizations, and the parties are really subject to the people who are members of that party. 
in the U.S. is just a label attached to a private corporation that can do whatever they want. That's right. Literally, they can ignore every primary in this country and nominate whoever the heck they want. That's, That's because insane, our laws but it's do not true. actually You're right. our primary votes. You're right. We don't have, I mean, we don't have the same kind of functioning democracy that the rest of the rich world takes for granted. Mm -hmm. We're not a full democracy and we should demand better. I agree, 100%. You're right on that. Um, so what are some of the other policy issues that we haven't discussed yet that are important to you in your campaign? There's um, a number of things that are really important in this area specifically. Um, I, I often talk about um, the need really to invest in Americans again, like we used to. That uh, Okay, you mentioned Eisenhower earlier, right? Eisenhower built the national highway system. Right. And they could, he could bring conservatives on board with that because they could say, well, in the event of a national emergency, I can move troops from place to place and da 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 and move resources. I'm like, okay, well, it makes sense. Um, but hey, it led to a massive economic boom because you invested in Americans. Right. Our infrastructure is rated a D. Yeah. And just widening freeways is never going to solve the problem if all you're doing is plopping out more bedroom communities. The, the, the 42nd is mostly bedroom communities and traffic and pollution. We have some of the worst air quality in the state and a third of the population of my district commutes out of county for work. They have to go to San Diego County, LA County, Orange County because there's no jobs here. We have mm -hmm. fast food places and houses. Um, so I wanna get a university in the area. I wanna get serious investment in, um, uh, in like, you know, tech stuff, like get some good green jobs. We got plenty of sunshine. Let's get some real solar developments in this area. Um, so education is important too there. That kind of leads, you know, I, I would like to get a Cal State or something in the area so people aren't having to drive to San Diego or San Bernardino to go to college. Uh, the um, other things that have a lot to do with um, our aspirations. I try to point out to people a lot, and this is a matter of getting bold again, um, talking about the real issues. We need to revitalize the American dream because it's being strangled. Um, there are still people that think that they're pursuing it by moving out here and getting their nice little McMansion in one of these bedroom communities, but they're not really chasing the American dream. They're being forced to move out here because it's too expensive to live anywhere else. They're already on the margins of it. And there's tons of people in this area that are never going to get there. They're stuck with those really low wage jobs with, you know, paying, you know, half, you know, or more of their income in rent. So we need a living wage. And I'm also for a basic income as a way of making up for 40 years of neoliberalism. Yes, we need to, to push up that minimum wage. Fight for 15, great. It should be 30, but that's fine. Let's start with 15. But let's add a basic income on top of that because it gives people that leg up that lets them to start investing in themselves again, get an education, save some money. Um, and I think that helped a lot too. And things like a basic income, help a lot in a district like mine where neither party has anything close to half of the, the votes, it's it's always the independents who are the margin of victory. Right. Democrats and Republicans, their support's always in the 30s still. Everybody who wins needs the independents. And talking to a lot of independents, they cared about things like that. They care about the lack of opportunity for their kids in this area. They care about the educational opportunities. They care about a basic income and helping people out. You know, basically helping out the, mid the, the middle class as well as the working class. The nice thing about um, UBIs is, is the universal part of it. Because one of the ways that, and this is again a, um, a bit of a, a trap that the right loves to lay for us with any kind of entitlement program or social welfare program is they can always fall into othering. People don't like, some people, some voters don't like helping other people. But if it helps everyone, they'll right. get on board. So it's a way of, of basically neutering a right-wing argument. If we constantly assume that you can somehow convince conservatives to give a damn about other people, you're, you're just asking to lose. You're, you're never going to change everyone's mind and get them to care about everybody. Right. So making some of these programs universal, I think would really help a lot. I agree. Universal programs require universal buy-in if they're going to stay and be effective. If you look at every program that has outlasted uh, several presidential administrations, et cetera, they've been universal in nature because the minute you create a poor, quote unquote, poor program, it it, it just limps through appropriations and, and, and ends up just 
beaten up on the floor. Whereas yeah, the reason social, social security, security. Is, is so beloved mm-hmm. in the country is because it's open to everybody. So exactly. I fully agree with you. Universal yeah. is key. Social security was, and and it's sad that we've allowed the right to turn entitlement into a, a dirty word because that was actually consciously chosen yeah, under, it's under Roosevelt. They called them entitlements because they wanted everyone to feel that they were buying into it. Right. If everyone contributed and everyone got something out of it, it would stick around. So yes, that's part of the genius of the design of social security as an entitlement was that we were all by by virtue of being Americans entitled to get this support. Right. But Indeed. we've somehow allowed the right to twist that word into a dirty word. So we need to find a way to push back against that and get us thinking. And, and honestly, the more that we talk about universal programs like that, the more it really helps us to get past things. So yeah, UBI helped us a lot in this area and really helped with that record turnout because we picked up a massive amount of support from independents that mm-hmm. people just have not been able to get in this area. Yeah, indeed. It would make a big difference in a lot of folks' life. Um, I fully support UBI. I think it makes sense. Um, on that note, Liam, and I just absolutely love talking to you because I feel like I could have like an academic debate with you, which I always enjoy, and I never get that. Um, but we got to go. But so my question is for is this, uh, if people want to donate to your campaign after listening and listening to you talk today, where's the best place for them to do that? Okay, so I got to I got to tack on a short pitch here. So oh, go ahead. Tack it on. <laughs> Give me like an extra 60 seconds or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, on the website at liamomera.org, there's a little donate button right on the top there. Easy place to get it. It's all in all my social media profiles as well. You can go straight to it and, um, and contribute there. But I think that we on the left in the United States have a real learned helplessness that we have to get past because yes, we have a lot of corruption in this country. And yes, people can write $20,000 checks to buy politicians or whatever. And you might be thinking, well, I've only got 20 bucks. I, I can't compete with that. So, so we don't give anything at all. If you give the price of a coffee a month, like literally a Starbucks coffee, give $5 a month, but set it up as a recurring contribution. It does two things. One, it adds up. A few thousand people giving just $5 a month can flip almost any house seat in this country. And we, we really misunderstand just how much power that, that gets to when you reach a certain scale. The other thing it does is it shows a significant amount of, of, um, of real grassroots support. Even if it's a small contribution, the fact that it lists under Act Blue as a recurring one is an argument I can use to get big progressive organizations and small dollar donors all across the country to say, look, you should pay attention to this race. Yeah. No, you're right. I agree with you there. So folks, um, and we saw it with the Bernie Sanders campaign. So folks, make sure you support candidates that you like. Uh, they need your help because they often are running up against big money interests. And that's true of both parties, you know, not just the Republicans. So if we're going to get change, structural change in the country, it's necessary that we get working class folks into these positions that understand the problems. I mean, the amount of millionaires in Congress is just astonishing. I think it's just about everybody at this point. It's it's criminal. It, it's it really criminal. Is. We, we, we are a literal oligarchy in this country, and yeah. we don't have to be. We still have more power than we think. Our votes matter and our dollars matter. And we need to fight while we still have enough of that freedom left. Because on our, our current trajectory, we're going to be a managed democracy like Russia with just fake elections. And I, I don't want to live in that. I don't either. I don't think your viewers do either. So nobody does. Step up and push back. (laughs) Right on. Thanks for coming on, Liam. Always a pleasure.